Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Indeed, today is the day. It's the day before Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving Eve. I don't know if that's really a word, but um, that's what today is. It's the Eve of Thanksgiving. We are giving thanks today. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We're giving thanks in all circumstances, and we are giving thanks um, with hearts that are content, acknowledging the spiritual blessings of God in Jesus Christ. So I want to uh, share this one quick story with you before we turn to a conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. So I read this obit in uh, this obituary in the London Guardian. And if I told you that there was one person who um, who had 100 million radio listeners, but whose name you've never heard because he's never actually said anything on the radio, like you might be intrigued, right? Well, um, so... Stephen Cleoberry uh, has been the director of music at King's College for 37 years. And so for 37 years, he has been directing the Lessons and Carols service that 100 million people around the world uh, listen to via radio, via the BBC, um, for Christmas Eve. And for many people, this is actually the way they you know, in their experience, like Christmas starts, like Christmas doesn't start until on Christmas Eve, that one little boy um, from the choir of King's College at Cambridge steps forward and sings the words of the very first carol. And it's always exactly the same. It's a tradition that dates back now in more than 100 years. Once in Royal David City stood a lowly cattle shed, where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was that mother mild, Jesus Christ, her little child. It is with those uh, words that um, that this service opens on Christmas Eve. And for 100 million people around the world, this is, they listen to this on radio, and this is how, for them, Christmas begins. And it made me um, remember, it, it like helped me recall the power of radio. And the way in which it touches people in places and times that really no other medium can reach. And so I just wanted to pause today on this day before Thanksgiving and give thanks for the fact that right now we're together via radio. That is extraordinary. And so I want to give thanks today for Paul Perot, who makes this program happen every day as its producer. So thanks be to God uh, today for you, Paul. Well, thank you. And I yeah, thank you. absolutely. And we're grateful for Neil Stavum and uh, Jason Sharp, and we're grateful for Northwestern Media, and we're grateful for the University of Northwestern St. Paul and Alan Curitan, our, our uh, university president. We're thankful for those who have given so faithfully to this ministry, not only um, over the years, but this year. Like, we're grateful for the gifts of our listeners. This is listener-supported radio. And so I just, I wanted to be sure to recognize my gratitude, my heart gratitude today 
um, for this medium and the fact that we can talk with each other on it. So um, thanks be to God today for radio. We'll be right back. Joining me again today, Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com, and today we're going to we're going to trade recipes. Bill, welcome. Hey, how are you today? I'm great. Did you bring your recipe card? You know, it's all in my brain. It's all locked in the vault of the English brain. That's where gonna, it is. We're, we're going to call this segment "Cooking with Carmen." Um, <laughs> so, because I don't have a cooking word for Bill, we would be like, unless you're like roasting something. I don't know. Well, it could be baking with Bill. Oh, it could be baking. It could be baking with Bill. Let's bake with Bill. Bill, Let's what are you Bill. what are you what are you cooking up, man? What are you cooking up for Thanksgiving? You know, um, my wife took over Thanksgiving, but I'm doing Christmas. And I'm doing a prime rib for Christmas. That's what I'm doing. Okay, so with a prime rib, the, the, there's an importance of searing it before you cook it. Am I right? This this like way exactly. that you Tell us, give us, give us the prime rib process, man. We're we're, we're here right, to learn. So, so, so you get you get the prime rib, and I don't care whether whether it's bone in or bone out. Um, I I tend to like bone out, and uh, I rub it with butter uh, on the outside, and then uh, I usually put uh, some onion powder, garlic powder, or garlic salt, either of those, and uh, rub that in real good. And then stick it in the oven. I get the oven as hot as I can get it. I think my oven only goes to 500 or 525. And uh, you you uh, stick it in there, uncovered, uh, in a in a special pan that you have to buy for prime ribs. And uh, you sear it for about 20 minutes at 525. And what that does is is that that kind of bakes the crust on the outside, while the meat is still very raw on the inside. And then I back it down to somewhere around 300, give or take, uh, for about uh, two and a half to three hours. And uh, now we like our prime ribs. Now, those those are listening who know how to do this. Um, you know, all the recipes will tell you once the internal temperature gets to about 145, it's done. But that's too raw for us. That we That's too rare. So we get ours in the 155 range, maybe even 160. And that's a little bit more of a medium uh, type of deal on the prime rib. Love prime rib. Love doing it. Okay, so that's fun. Um, and <clears throat> I'm gonna. So I'll just admit to you, I've had, normally in the past I have seared my prime rib um, in a cast iron skillet on the top of the stove before I have put it in the oven at that really? like 300 temp. Right? Like I like sear it that way. I can sear every side of it. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. I don't know if it's wrong, but the baking, if I mean, you'll sear all the sides of it inside the oven, too. Oh, okay. But maybe well, you and I have a different concept of what searing is. Mm, maybe. Right? I'm just, yeah. Well, there you go. I don't know. I'm going to have to try your method, and then I'll let you know. All right, let's talk about Thanksgiving, because um, you're probably not having prime rib tomorrow. No, we're having a turkey, and my daughter, my very beautiful, precocious daughter, um, wants to use this new brine, this kind of this dry salt brine, 
and and we're, we're going to try and rub it in and we're going to try and follow the directions and hopefully it all works out and if it doesn't then we're going to go over to Culver's and have uh hamburgers or something i don't know but <laughs> i love it so um what time of day does your family eat thanksgiving we're a, we're a mid to late afternoon thanksgiving day feasting people yeah, uh, I I suspect we'll eat Thanksgiving sometime during the Lions game, mm. uh, because we're not lion, you know, we're not big Lions fans. Uh, okay. But it, it's it's midday for us too. We don't do it in the evening. All right, and how so, about any any like traditions? I mean, certainly the go around the table and and say what you're grateful for. But do you guys have other Thanksgiving uh, Thanksgiving Day traditions, like a turkey trot or anything like that? Uh, our church is developing one, and I haven't participated in it. I was thinking about going tomorrow, but with 10 inches of snow, it may not happen. <laughs> uh, they, they, the guys get together at 930 on Thanksgiving morning, and they play football in the church field. Oh, uh, and, then they, and then they come back and eat dinner while the wives have prepared it, which I'm not sure all the wives enjoy that. Um so, but no, I, other family traditions for Thanksgiving, no, most of our traditions around Christmas. So maybe in four weeks we'll have to talk about, you know, what the English family does for Christmas. Oh, that's, so. that sounds like a good plan. All right. How about sides? Uh, people have lots of varieties in terms of the approach to cranberries. And then there is apparently a debate between stuffing or dressing of what variety. So there you go. Cranberries oh and then stuffing. What What's happening at the English household related to these two items uh kathy my wife always makes both so we'll have cranberries and we'll have stuffing uh where i get involved is in the potatoes i like to whip potatoes all right i love that okay so give, give us uh, for, for somebody who's never made a mashed potato what is your methodology Are you serious oh Carmen. okay so here's the no here's the reason i'm telling you this because i actually have written down in my notes what food item makes it Thanksgiving for you? And in our family, the mashed potatoes and gravy is definitely a part of this conversation. And at one, I remember distinctly at one Thanksgiving, my mom, because she's so gracious, she let some neighbor ladies like, you know, well, they wanted to bring something. And so she let one particular neighbor lady who I feel like should go unnamed because she might be listening. Um, she let her bring the potatoes and she'd apparently never made a mashed potato. And you can mess it up because she did. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, no, um, so what? So what I do is we obviously boil the peel and boil the potatoes until they're soft. But you and don't then, cut uh, them up. See, here's the here's the I think tricky part. I think she cut them up too small before she boiled them, and you can't. You have to leave the chunks pretty big, like you know, quarter a potato. Don't cut a potato into a hundred little pieces. Right, right, right. So and 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 that's what we that's what I do. And See, so, you think that you oh, thought that went without saying. Well, yeah, this that's is ra- how we This is radio, done. man. Nothing goes without saying. You know what? I and I got this. I got this uh, recipe from my great aunt Margaret in our family farm in Ohio, Versailles, Ohio. And I remember as a kid, she would make these whipped potatoes, and and I went in and asked her one time, "How do you do it?" And so the next meal, she taught me how to do these potatoes, and I've done this way ever since. It's a Can wonderful. You share? Yeah, so what you do is peel, boil the potatoes, get them soft, <clears throat> stick them in the, uh, I don't know, the KitchenAid blender, and uh, and you whip them. But I put a little milk in there, and, I, and then I put a little butter in there, and then I whip. And I mean I whip, 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 whip until they are light and airy. 
Now, this method also leaves a few chunks in there that, that uh, will be just a little bit crunchy. And our family likes that. Mm-hmm. Our family likes the combination of the whip and the, and the chunk. And, uh, and then you uh, just serve them as, as whipped potatoes and put a little gravy on them. And boy, are they filling. I'll tell you what. And they're real good. I love it. So fun. Okay, well, we're going we're gonna to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Bill English about pies, and we are going to, uh, we're going to discuss which pies we are having tomorrow for Thanksgiving and who's making them. So the pie, the pie conversation up next, and then, yes, we're going to talk about leftovers. All right, that's all up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm smelling coffee, birds are singing just outside. Here comes your mercy streaming in with the morning. All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. And we are um, we are talking about what is happening with our families tomorrow. So what have you got cooking? What is on the Thanksgiving Day, not only plan, but on the platter? Um, and now we're moving to pies. So what's for dessert? First of all, are you having pies or are you some sort of renegade American family that does not have pie on Thanksgiving? Oh, no. Oh, my heavens. You can't have Thanksgiving without pies. There you go. I, mean, I don't think so. I agree. I, mean, I agree. Muffins, cakes, none of that would work, right? Right. So, okay, yeah. so pie. So pie. So my wife loves um, my wife loves pumpkin pies. Now, I don't. I'm not a big pumpkin guy. I don't know about you. Are you a pumpkin girl? Do you like so pumpkin pies? Well, I have a pumpkin pie recipe that I have uh, doctored up a little bit. And so now there is a pumpkin pie that I love because it is it's like a little bite to it. It's got ginger and cloves in it. And so it is, oh, um, it's a pumpkin pie with a little bit of a zing. And so I do like it. Okay. All right. So, uh, I'm a blueberry guy, so uh, I love blueberry pies, especially when they're warmed up with some vanilla, French vanilla ice cream. Oh, my heavens. Bring the calories on. They go straight to your heart, and uh, it's just a wonderful thing. So So uh, how do you feel about pecan pie? No, thank you. No, thank you. I am not a nut guy when it comes to pies. I I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I feel like I feel like nuts and chocolate um, should be enjoyed as nuts and as chocolate. So I don't want my chocolate contaminated with fruit, and I don't really want my nuts like in in something else. I just want the nut. Now I know nuts in in ice cream. Do you like like nuts? nuts, I like nuts and salad. Ooh. Okay. You know, like a pecan, strawberry, spinach salad with some goat cheese. Like that is, the, I think the nut works well there. But okay. I'm not a fan of a nut in a lot of other environments. I see. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although, so, although, can I tell you, can I tell you a, a listener story sure. really quickly? Um, sure. So there's a precious listener out there who uh, heard a segment that we did at one point in time. And I was just encouraging people to pick up trash, pick up litter, and just have that be like an expression of, literally throwing Satan in the trash. Like you're literally, he has littered the environment, right? And so you could just have that be like one little tangible act of defiance against Satan today. And she works at the um, Minneapolis St. Paul airport. And part of her, you know, like part of her role, right, is like picking up trash. I mean, it's everybody's job at some level. Otherwise the place would be covered with trash because people are just trash makers. Okay, so 
she was inspired by that and encouraged by that. And then apparently she heard another segment where I made some reference to the pecan Snickers bar, the Snickers bar that has pecans in it, which was like the limited release thing. And I didn't get one and da, da, da. She made me one. She made me. (gasps) I know. And Paul Perot is very dutifully keeping it in his refrigerator because, you know, I don't live in Minneapolis. So when I come up there the second week of December, I'm going to get my pecan Snickers bar that's that's homemade. How fun is that? Oh, that's way fun. And the discipline, the discipline required in Paul's life to not eat it. You have oh, no Paul, idea. Oh, no. Oh, See? Paul, are you a pecan guy? Oh, love pecans. And the way you talked about you, both of you dissing pecan pie. I mean, really? <laughs> and with chocolate. Really? Oh, pecan oh, pie Paul. with chocolate. That's a whole different thing. Doesn't oh, that have a name? Great. Isn't that like Kentucky something? I don't know. It's just it's just heaven on a plate. Oh, oh, see, man. I, you know what? Heaven, here's, here's the good uh, news. There's enough pie to go around. Oh, no. Heaven will not don't, have pecan chocolate together. I just promise you. <laughs> don't you think that the world would be a better place if people knew that Christians don't just think that there's pie in the sky, but that there's pie right now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like part of the misconception about Christianity is that we're just waiting for some pie in the sky future. And no, there's pie right now. There's pie at church right now. We are oh, pie that people. Was that was good. I like that one. That was good. Well, there you go. I worked on that all day. Okay. How about leftovers? Apparently, you have an issue with leftovers. Bill English, no, what is your issue with leftovers? I was just laughing. It was the way you said it. Going, you know, going into the going into the break. It was just the way you said it. No, we do leftovers like everybody else. I'm sure Paul does leftovers. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so can I can I give you my leftover trick? We have one trick please. with leftovers. So you get so the next day, <clears throat> Friday morning, get your waffle iron out. And get it good and hot, and yeah. um, butter works best uh, in this methodology, but I'm sure you could spray it with something else if you wanted to. And then get your leftover stuffing or dressing out of the refrigerator and put about a um, an ice cream scoop in the middle and press it down in your waffle iron. And it makes this crunchy, crispy on mm. the outside, still tender and juicy on the inside waffle of stuffing that you can then put a little turkey and a little gravy on and you can have your like friday morning leftover thanksgiving breakfast that still looks looks like breakfast wow never heard of that i'm so full of ideas we we might have to have a cooking with carmen segment because this is kind of fun (laughs) well what kathy does is she takes all the leftovers uh, from the various dishes, and she forms a pot pie on Friday. Oh, I love bit- that. All right, and yeah. then I know there's people that, that do like a, a really, really delicious turkey soup out of many of the leftovers, which um, you can use those leftover whipped potatoes to thicken a soup, um, and that yes. is kind of a fun way to use those, and that's delish. Okay, we have to yeah. go. We're out of time, I know, and we're hungry. We're all salivating. <laughs> we're all looking for something to eat. Um, but we got to go, and Bill English, thank you so much. Have a most blessed and happy Thanksgiving. Um, I do want to direct people to this um, very provocative piece you have posted at BibleAndBusiness.com, and maybe we could talk about it next week, Investing Ourselves in Those Who Are Not Like Us. It's really a good post, but it was it's so provocative that I want to give a, a whole segment. So can we talk about that next week? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do it next so, week. Sounds good. Sounds good. Hey, uh, happy Thanksgiving, man. Happy Thanksgiving to you and to you too, Paul. Well, thank you. You too. All right. We'll be right back. 
Couldn't have said it better myself. All right. We are going to talk next with Mark David Hall about his new book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. Let me go ahead and tell you in advance. I have five copies to give away. If you um, listen to the interview and you're interested, you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. That's how this works now. We're just going to text the word book. Nothing else. No reason why you should be the one to get the book. Just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, my conversation with Mark David Hall about his new book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Does your son refuse to spend any time with your family? Does he go out of his way to avoid family dinners? Would he rather spend time alone in his room than with his parents or siblings? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. As kids mature, it's natural for them to spend more time away from home with friends. But when a teen suddenly refuses to spend any time with his or her family, it could be a red flag. Maybe there's a bigger problem. So if you've got a nagging feeling in your gut that something isn't right, don't ignore it. A little intolerance for parents or family is normal in every teen's life, but complete rejection isn't. Take some time to investigate and get your teen the help he needs to cope with whatever he's facing. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit and He's given us new life. So I'm thrilled to be joined today by Mark David Hall. He's the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics and Faculty Fellow in the William Penn Honors Program at George Fox University. Um, he is involved in all kinds of um, Religious liberty organizations and efforts uh, in in the American conversation, really at the intersection of what I would describe religion and politics. Um, Dr. Hall, it is thrilling to have you with us. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. So I am one of the something like 300,000 people who downloaded um, a, a PDF of a of a lecture that you gave at a heritage event like almost a decade ago. I, I am one of those people. And so I have been paying attention to the your answer to this question, did America have a Christian founding, for a number of years. But that has now become a book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Talk with us about how that talk started it all. Sure. Well, I think what the talk shows is that there's a deep and abiding interest in these questions. So I was just scheduled to give a lecture, showed up, and lo and behold, C-SPAN was there to cover it, which we did not expect, but we're very happy. Then I turned the lecture into an um, essay, which, as you mentioned, has been downloaded more than 300,000 times, which, again, was somewhat shocking. And so I was able to use those numbers to help get a contract for the book that was recently published in America Have a Christian Founding, which is my first book aimed at the general reading public. So I've done a dozen academic books, most of which you know haven't been read very much outside of the scholarly community. But this book's absolutely intended for your um, regular reader. Um, you don't need to have a PhD. You don't even need to have a college degree to be able to read this and appreciate the arguments. 
Well, and one of the things I really appreciate that you've done is that you have taken all of those scholarly arguments. You have taken, you know, something like 30 years of writing in this area, and you have distilled it down um, in a way that is it's digestible for, um, you know, for a general reader, for a person, you know, living anywhere in America who is concerned about the question, is asking the question, you know, is America a Christian nation? That's one question. Did did we actually have a, a, a Christian founding? That's kind of a different question, but an important one in the conversation that we're having today. So when you think about who you hope reads this book, um, who, you know, sort of like what what's your heart hope for this? The um, realistic hope is that it will be read by conservative Christians that are already sympathetic to the arguments I'm making, and I think it will equip them to better defend the idea that America had a Christian founding, that the founders didn't want to create a wall of separation between church and state, and that sort of thing. But my heart hope is that it would be read by a far broader audience, uh, maybe even people on the progressive left who routinely say things like, um, we have a godless constitution, that religious liberty is limited to houses of worship, and hopefully change some minds there. Again, a, a slightly more realistic hope is a broad population of Americans in the middle, not on the right or the left, might read this and understand the importance of Christianity for America's founding, the importance of religious liberty, that it's permissible for presidents to issue calls for prayer and fasting or Thanksgiving Day proclamations and that sort of thing. So th- those are my a series of hopes, I guess you might call it. So I live in a state where um, recently our governor uh, called us to a day of prayer and fasting. And certainly, um, you know, Thanksgiving is upon us. And we will, as a nation, acknowledge that we that we live under the under the sovereignty of a great and good God and that by his providence, um, you know, we have this daily bread and this opportunity to live as free people. Uh, I do think that at moments like this, uh, there are days, there are spaces and places where it's just easy for us to acknowledge that um, that there is at least an American heritage. I mean, there's at least a Christian heritage to America. Um, and so how how and when did this notion, this argument that we have a godless constitution or that there should be a wall of separation between church and state when did these ideas begin to emerge? Because they seem very prevalent today. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, perhaps as early as 1802, when Thomas Jefferson wrote his famous letter to the Danbury Baptist, where he said that the Establishment Clause created a wall of separation between church and state. But I think these arguments really picked up steam in the mid-20th century, where progressive academics and separationist justices reached back and really distorted American history to say the founders were deists, they created a godless constitution, they wanted to build a wall of separation between church and state. Let me just tell you one quick story, and I have a lot of stories like this, but I think it's telling and it's particularly appropriate for this time of year. So literally two days after, no, one day after, the House of Representatives came to its final language of the First Amendment Ilias Boudinot said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, hey, guys, things are going well. Why don't we ask President Washington to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation? Um, Thomas Tucker and Adonis Burke stood up and said, oh, we can't do that. That's a European practice. Um, Roger Sherman, the old Puritan from Connecticut, said, no, 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 guys. It's a biblical practice. It's worthy of Christian imitation, so we should do it today. And so the House agreed with Boudinot and Sherman. The Senate agreed with the House, 
And President George Washington issued a wonderful, theologically robust Thanksgiving proclamation in 1789. You can Google it, find it easily enough. It's a wonderful thing. It'd be well worth reading on Thanksgiving, I would suggest. But I think this helps show that the founders, they did pass the First Amendment. They didn't want an established, an established church, but in no way, shape, or form did they intend to build a wall of separation between church and state. I am talking with Professor Mark David Hall of George Fox University about his book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. Um, Mark, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's let's just talk about, you know, our founders' thoughts about God and government. Let's, let's set the record straight on that. And then um, maybe you could tell us uh, another story, because I do think that when— when we know the stories of our own heritage, it does help us understand who we are as we the people. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Returning now to my conversation with Mark David Hall. He is uh, the author of Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. Um, Mark, just talk about the relationship that our founders imagined or understood between God and government. Sure. Well, let me begin by saying that of Americans of European descent in the late 18th century, 98% are Protestant, 2% are Roman Catholic, and there's about 2,500 Jews in America. And so definitely we're talking about a Christian people by any measure. But I think even more important than that, America's founders drew from their Christian beliefs, their Christian convictions when they created our constitutional order. So they were convinced, for instance, that humans are created in the image of God and therefore should be treated with dignity and respect. They were convinced that humans are sinful, that even um, redeemed humans are struggling with the old man within. So they developed a constitutional order characterized by things like the rule of law, separation of powers, checks and balances. And that's one reason I think it's been so very successful vis-a-vis um, -vis other constitutional orders. With respect to religion specifically, our religious liberty, church-state relations, they absolutely embraced a very robust understanding of religious liberty. They didn't talk about a freedom of belief or freedom of worship. They talked about a, a freedom to exercise our religious convictions, which means that they thought we could bring our religion with us into the public square, into our workplaces, and this sort of thing. With respect to church-state relations, I already suggested they did not want us to have a national church, and then many were coming to question the, the utility of establishments at state level that is having one official established church. But in no way, shape, or form did they desire to strictly separate church and state, and so they had no problem with governors issuing prayers, calls for prayer and fasting, or Thanksgiving Day proclamations, with presidents doing the same, with having legislative chaplains, military chaplains, and on and on you could go. There's lots of ways that it's appropriate for church and state to cooperate. Um, they simply do not want an official established church. One of the things that occurs to me um, is that their, the life that they lived, the time in which they lived, um, when we're talking about our founders, in terms of the expectations of the worldview or the education that they had or the shared experiences, it's just so different. Like, take us back to to their shared experience um, at the time of our nation's founding. Sure. Well, one important thing to know is that the vast majority were Protestants. 
Protestants are people of the book. They believe in sola scriptura and the priesthood of all believers. And so one thing you saw in America is literacy rates, unlike we see anywhere else in the world. In Puritan New England, almost 100 percent male literacy, and many, many females could read as well. But even into the South, you had widespread literacy, at least among American European descent. How did they learn to read? Uh, they read the New England Primer. They used the New England Primer, which has a cute little alphabet, uh, and it contains phrases like this, A, in Adam's fall, we sin all. And so their school books were just littered with um, Christian theology and biblical truths. The Bible was by far and away the most widespread book, the most widely used book, the most cited book. I cite a um, study done by a political scientist published in my discipline's most prestigious journal, and basically he does a content analysis of political literature of the era. And what he finds is that the Bible is cited about 34% of the time, all, the works of all Enlightenment authors combined, so a Locke, a Montesquieu, a Bakari, a Smith, are cited about 22% of the time. So the Bible is cited by far and away more often than all the works in the Enlightenment combined. But even that undercount citations or quotations to the Bible, because he's specifically looking for quota- you know, the little citation, right? The parenthetical Micah 4.4, Micah 6.8, Psalm 139.5. Yeah, he's not looking to a casual, for a casual reference to the Good Samaritan or a casual reference to the plumb line. That's exactly right. And you yeah. had those all the time, literally all the time. I mentioned Micah 4.4. Washington, George Washington, paraphrases this verse over 40 times in private letters and public documents, and yet some scholars look back and say things like, there is no evidence that George Washington even read the Bible. The only reason they can come to that conclusion is because they're biblically illiterate. Which is a problem today. Oh, it's a huge problem. I mean, there's so many people who simply, they're not hearing what is being said by politicians and others because they're not familiar with the scriptures. And so they don't know that this practice persists today. There are all kinds of references to scripture in, um, you know, in political discourse today. The people who are missing it are the people who are biblically illiterate. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And it's, um, you know, very problematic for the, the, the issues I address in this book because you just have all sorts of scholars, and they're smart people, and I don't think many of them have an ideological agenda, but they just miss the influence of Christianity on America's founders because they're not familiar with Christian theology, they're not familiar with the Christian tradition of political reflection, and they're not familiar with the Bible. So one of the things I love about the book, and again, it's Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. The author is Mark David Hall. Um, one of the things I love about the book is the stories that you tell. So I, I don't know. I don't even know how to pick one. Um, is there one that stands out in your mind that you're like, ah, if I could tell one story, this is the story I want to tell? Sure. This is another one of my favorite coincidences. So we've already talked about Thomas Jefferson and his famous letter to the Danbury Baptist, where he says that the um, that the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment creates a wall of separation between church and state. Literally two days after he penned the final draft of that letter, he went to church services in the U.S. Capitol building where he heard John Leland, the great Baptist itinerant minister and himself an opponent of establishments, preach. And um, I, I give that example to suggest that whatever Jefferson meant by this wall of separation between church and state, he apparently did not think it was inappropriate to have church services in the U.S. Capitol building. Neither did John Leland, who himself opposed religious establishments. And Jefferson went on to permit the War Department building and the Treasury Department building 
to be used for church services as well. So I'm definitely not suggesting Jefferson, we know, is not an Orthodox Christian. He wanted a greater degree of separation than in most founders. But even he and his practices did not act as if there was a wall of separation between church and state. And when we turn from Jefferson to the rest of the founding generation, we, we see almost no evidence that they thought there must be such a wall. And that's a good thing, because this wall has been used to attack religious liberty over the last 15 years. This wall has been used to say things like parents cannot receive vouchers to send their children to private religious schools, or a Lutheran preschool cannot participate in a state program to provide safe playground services. And so I think it's very important as a matter of law and public policy to just demolish this historical myth that the founders wanted to create a wall of separation between church and state. And then we can argue about these other policies. Some of them might be prudential, some of them might not be. But let's have a real conversation about them instead of pretending there's some sort of wall of separation that never existed. There are so many um, just simple observations that you make in this book that uh, equip and empower me as a Christian to make observations in conversations. It's something as simple as the observation of references to in the year of our Lord and Savior, and then, you know, then the number being lined out in a government document or in the Constitution itself. Um, so when we, when, we, when we hear somebody say it's a godless Constitution, or we live in a culture where our founders, you know, believe there should be a strict separation, and, you know, it, it, there are some simple things that we can point to and you lift those up for us in a way that makes them very, very accessible to the common person. So I just want to thank you for the, the book and the approach to the conversation. Again, the book is Did America Have a Christian Founding? The author is Mark David Hall. You can find him at George Fox University. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Carmen. It's been my pleasure. We'll be right back. So if you would like to enter the drawing to uh, receive one of the five copies of Did America Have a Christian Founding, you can text the word book, book, B-O-O-K, to 877-933-2484. What you're going to get back is a is a form for you to fill out online um, that will you know provide us with all of the necessary information. But all you have to do is text the word book to 877-933-2484 if you want to enter the drawing for one of the five copies of the book that we have. Uh, folks have been asking, hey, where do I find that Thanksgiving Day proclamation issued by George Washington in 1789? Um, I think the easiest place to find it is mountvernon.org. If you go to mountvernon.org, you can find not only those primary source documents, but lots of really great stories about the first president of the United States and the days of the nation's founding. Um, his, his faith and, uh, and lots of conversations about the way that they applied faith to life low those many years ago. How are you applying faith to life today? That is ultimately the question that we're asking here every single day. I'm encouraging you to walk your faith out into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus, bring God back into every conversation, and thereby change the world, right? We change the world by changing um, every conversation we have in it. So that's my encouragement to each and every one of us today. Hey, happy Thanksgiving Eve. Have a great day and God bless.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.